even if you're talking to a regular person that's not into this stuff and you start like questioning money, they will completely reject it. They will refuse to accept the possibility that printing money creates inflation when that's like just an obvious connection there. Like they, they will create a hundred excuses of why inflation is happening, except money production. Then at the same time, if you bring up the fact that um, Bitcoin does have a supply cap and it can't be printed, they're like, oh, well, what about the deflationary spiral? And it's like, okay, so if you think a fixed supply could create a deflationary <laughs> spiral, I, how can you not put like two and two together that printing money could create inflation? I think once you crack that, like everything on top seems to come apart. Hello and welcome to Bitcoin with Jake. This is a podcast all about people's personal journeys to Bitcoin. I wanted to know more about the people converging on this new form of money. Why do they see value in it? What skills enable their understanding? How is it changing their lives? If you're a founder looking for funding or an investor looking to make investments, then please reach out as I develop my network in the space. Do me a favor and chuck us a five-star rating on whichever app you're using to listen or a like if you're watching it somewhere. As insignificant as this may seem, they help a startup project like this hugely. Lastly, if you have any questions at all, please just reach out. The easiest place to find me is on Twitter at Jake E.S. Woodhouse. Now, on to today's episode. Today, I'm speaking with Neil Woodfine. Hey, Neil, how are you? Hi, Jake. Doing good, thanks. It's like great to be on the show. Yeah, no, thank you so much for joining me. So I always start at the same point. Where were you and what were you doing when Bitcoin came into your life? I was working in a, a city called Nanjing in China. I was uh, working on cement machinery exports from China to, to Africa, specifically Nigeria. And um, yeah, I was basically, it was a strange job. I, um, I didn't have a whole lot to do each day just due to the nature of the work. And a friend sent me an, an article on Bitcoin and it was specifically talking about the price. I had a price chart in it and it looked fairly promising. Um, I wasn't into kind of like freedom money or kind of libertarianism or any of that stuff at the time. And on a purely cynical kind of speculative play, I just touched a little bit and immediately it started pumping. Like I bought it just at kind of the cusp of the big pump in 2013. So yeah, that just got me completely hooked. Um, I was just like, whoa, like why? why is Bitcoin doing this? <laughs> and then because I had so much spare time, yeah, just on Reddit every day. Back then, BTCE was quite a big exchange. They had a, a crazy troll box. That was a great place to learn about Bitcoin and all the other cryptocurrencies. Because at the time, obviously, I was just like, okay, all oh, this is quite cool. Like bought a bit of Quartcoin and all that garbage. Yeah, learned my lessons. And uh, yeah, and then just got completely obsessed with Bitcoin. Wicked. And, and so we'll, we'll get more to kind of the Bitcoin story and how, you know, that's 2013. So that's almost... Well, that is 10 years ago. It's quite incredible, to be honest, how time flies by. Yeah. Um, so you obviously grew up in the UK. How did you end up in China? And just to briefly, like, before we gloss over that point, like, what on earth does the... So you mentioned cement, and you were exporting to Africa. Like, how do you even get into that kind of job? <laughs> it's, a, it's a very long and strange story, so I'll try and keep it short. <laughs> um, basically, I did a gap year in China, and then I also studied Chinese at university. So immediately after graduation, I just went out and started working there. First job was a bit of a dud, left that after three months, and then got into a very strange job doing fine dispersion machinery in a, a, a small city called Jiangyin. And uh, that was kind of a baptism of fire. I, was a, I got drafted in as a quality control technician just because the local 
it was a joint venture between a, a British company and a Chinese company. And unfortunately, the local quality control engineers just couldn't maintain quality. So I was down there with a pair of calipers and kind of measuring parts and stuff like that, wow. just making sure that everything was getting produced at high quality. And that just kind of set me on this path of working in exports in China. And uh, yeah, I, I benched around a bit. So I started to find dispersion machinery and then later went into flooring and then later I went into cement. Yeah. So oh, I did a bit of active carbon for a while as well. So like kind of, yeah, a, a wide variety of products being exported. But um, yeah, so I worked in China for 11 years. And then yeah, when I was in that cement role, I just kind of got completely obsessed with Bitcoin and decided that like, I had a pretty good career going at that point, but I was just like, I, I need to do anything I can to get get into this in industry. So interesting. Um, took the plunge. And sorry, so so did you have an engineering background or something to end up in manufacturing no. like that? It was no, no, no. So you've like, done the Chinese yeah. and so therefore you could speak bilingually or something crazy. I mean, it's incredibly hard. Yes. Uh, to yes. Learn. Wow. Yeah. So I mean, like I say, it was a bit of a baptism of fire. Like I was working at a factory. <laughs> there was no other foreigners in the town, and, and like I was speaking Chinese none. every day. None at all. No one else. They had a shipyard. Yeah. And so the shipyard had some like kind of not expats, but foreigners that would pass through like um, yeah. ship engineers and stuff like that. But um, yeah. so like if you went to the, the the local kind of bar street or something, you would see a, a bunch of like ship men yeah. Yeah. drinking beers and stuff like that. But generally there wasn't many foreigners in, in wow. town at all. Yeah. I spent some time in Singapore. So four years or so I was there. So I've been in Asia a fair bit. It's it's quite different when you end up in a place where literally you're the only man there, basically. It's an amazing experience. So you're explaining how you had this job, you had some spare time, and you were like, you became Bitcoin obsessed. This is roughly 2013. Can you kind of rewind and remember, like, what was it that made you think, okay, I have to do something about getting into this industry? Or what was that thought process like? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'll just be brutally honest. It wasn't a particularly idealistic decision a bit like when I bought my first Bitcoin, it was kind of more of a selfish decision. Um, so I was earning a decent salary, but like from my point of view, I saw a lot of people making a lot of money in the financial industry, the traditional financial industry. And I was like, okay, this is my thought process at the time. They're at this kind of nexus of where money flows through and therefore they can just like kind of scoop it up. And like, if Bitcoin is the future of money, then I want to be in, in that industry. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I kind of joined mainly on that basis. But as I became closer to Bitcoin and worked in the industry for longer, I think like I'm a bit more selective with the type of projects that I'm working on. It's not just purely about, okay, like how, how do I kind of maximize my personal benefit from this? I mean, there's obviously lots of other projects. If you're, if you're a bit more flexible with like shit coins and stuff like that, mm -hmm. there's obviously a lot more projects you could go and work for. Um, whereas like these days I'm limiting myself to Bitcoin only focusing on things that like kind of optimize for self-custody, stuff like that. It's one hell of a journey. I mean, there's no doubt about it. The, the information that you have at the time, you make decisions based on that. What I like is the the kind of characters that seem to be drawn to Bitcoin. Like it's not the average person in my mind anyway, that's going to end up in China, having grown up in the UK, working over there for a sustained period of time. Like there's a certain kind of risk mentality in that step to go and take that, or, or you could use another word of brave. Like you may not think of it like that, but not that many people will choose to do those kind of things. And I'm interested as to why that might be the case or 
why these different characters end up being drawn into what Bitcoin now is. But shitcoins would have come through your your world at that time. And there's not such an easy narrative now with all of this amazing content that you can consume that teaches you why Bitcoin is completely different to the rest of the cryptocurrency market. So let's go. So, so you're in this cement world and you're like, okay, I want to work into Bitcoin. How did that process play out? So what were the first things that you ended up deciding to go and do? And what work did you find to help you translate? Yeah, so I think at the time it would have been very difficult to get into the industry in another country. So let's say I've been in the US or the UK because I had zero experience in like tech or, or finance. But because I had the Chinese language skills and at the time, 2013, 2014, Chinese exchanges were some of the biggest in the world if not the biggest in the world. So it's just this like great kind of like fortunate position. I basically um, applied to OKCoin and uh, they brought me in for an interview. I, I was actually like shooting because they were only hiring for customer service positions at the time. And I was willing to do like anything. I was just yeah. like, okay, like what can I do? So I applied for a customer service position, but ultimately they put me in, in charge of institutional sales. And uh, yeah, and it was just such a fantastic experience. Wow. So at the time, CZ, was in charge of the international team. So okay. like I got to work with CZ for a while, super smart guy, like wow. disagree with a lot of decisions around finance and shit coinings and stuff, but mm -hmm. like he's an amazing businessman. So yeah, got to, got to work alongside him. Also, OKCoin was supposedly the biggest exchange at the time. It had the most transaction volume, although as everybody knows, China fakes a lot of transaction volume. So like question really? mark over whether it actually was wow. or not. But yeah, because it had so much transaction volume, there was a lot of international Bitcoin businesses tapping into OKCoin's transaction volume. And that meant because I was running institutional sales, I was like connecting with all of these different people within the industry. And a lot of those contacts that I made at the time, like have lasted me to today. And it just gave me this like really kind of broad, fascinating view of like what was going on around the industry. And then I also met one of my very good friends, Richard Bensberg. He was head of compliance. And um, later we went on to found our own startup called Bramitzi. So yeah, and there's a bunch of other people, like there's the OKCoin okay alumni that uh, yeah, went on to do some interesting things too. You do hear stories of teams of people that work within certain companies that are breakout businesses in whatever industry they might be in. And through those friendships, they then go on to start other companies together. And it's, it's actually a process I've not yet been part of, but would love to be at some point. It sounds like a really amazing thing to, to witness, to see a company just lift off in a market that's going gangbusters. And there's lots of things that go wrong that, you know, you see areas of the business that aren't functioning as well as they could be. And then therefore they're new opportunities and people who've already worked together, boom, they go off and they start. And that's. I'm guessing what you're about to tell me is effectively what happened. So you mentioned your friend just now who you ended up starting a business with. So talk me through how that process went and what the initial problem point was that you recognized and why you felt it was something you wanted to go and do with your life. Yeah. So because we were working on the inside of the exchange, we saw a lot of like internal workings. For example, a lot of people gamble on exchanges and like we could see that the vast majority of people not winning at that particular game. There's a small number of very smart institutional or like just very smart individuals that just like reap most of the rewards from that trading game and the vast mm -hmm. majority are just kind of getting wiped out so yeah like just something for everybody to bear in mind if they ever start thinking about like okay i'm going to like become a trader like most people are not succeeding at that but then another thing that we saw on the inside was that there was a number of businesses that were making payments for other types of goods and services to China by using Bitcoin as the rails. Let's say they were buying from the US, they would convert their US dollars into Bitcoin, transfer the Bitcoin to the exchange, convert that to RMB, and then deliver that to their supplier in, in China. And there was like 
a few businesses doing that. Not it wasn't a huge amount of business, but like we we're like, okay, that seems like quite a good plan. At the time as well, there was a Bitcoin premium in China. So it meant there was like a really nice little spread there to make on any of those transfers while keeping the fees zero for anybody making those transfers. So we're like, okay, how do we operationalize this? How do we kind of commercialize this into like just a business in itself? And that got Richard and I thinking about how we do that. And eventually we got some seed funding and it's like, okay, let's leave OK going and, and get this started. So we launched a company called Remitzi. We weren't the first by any means. There was already four or five different, they were called remittance startups at the time. We were specifically focused on the China corridor. So anybody from outside of China making payments into China rather than doing like lots of different currency pairs. So we were the only ones doing that, but uh, there was a lot of other remittance startups. So yeah, we did that for a year and a half. It went quite well, but unfortunately we had competitors, Wire, for instance. Now you're probably quite familiar with Wire if you... Uh, Mike was on the show, actually. I've chatted great. with him a bit, but... I'm, I'm not, I haven't been in the industry as long as someone like yourself at all. So it's, yeah. I don't know the business inside out, but certainly, yeah. So Mike came on and told me his story, which has yeah. been a, a real roller coaster in recent days, but no, go ahead. Pretend I don't know. It's probably the better way of saying okay, it. Because yeah. people, I mean, people listening uh, might not know. So why were a San Francisco based startup and they were also doing remittance, but they were doing lots of different currency pairs. They were more well-funded than us, like Mike probably a better entrepreneur than us. So yeah, they just grew faster and ultimately we ended up getting acquired by them. So they took in all of our kind of systems and business structures. And then I continued to work at Wire for, for another year, year and a bit, but it was a really, in, I mean, that was my first ever startup, um, mm -hmm. just Richard and I founding it. So yeah, it was a really good experience at the same time. I think one of the key lessons that I learned was the deficiencies of the traditional financial system. So when you're actually running your own startup, you realize the scale of traditional financial regulations and how much it interferes with any attempt to make any kind of business. And just every single day, the kind of ground was shifting beneath us as regulations started to change. Even without the regulations changing, it's like such a massive lift to put everything in place, get the business structures, get the licenses and stuff to get this stuff working. And then as well, it seeps into every aspect of the business. So if you're doing sales or marketing, you have to think about all of these regulations. You're speaking to a client and instead of just trying to sell them on the service, you're trying to work out whether you can even service them. Like you've got to work out like, where are the, the shareholders from? Where is the business located? Yeah, where are wow. they making payments to? What are the size of the payments? Mm -hmm. And you're constantly kind of making all these calculations like, okay, is this a high risk business or is this like a low risk business? And then wow. you'll often encounter perfectly good clients that could use your servers. And you just have to turn them away because maybe like one of the, the team has like some Afghanistan heritage or something like that. It's like horrible. You're wow. kind of like almost policing your clients. And so like that, that experience of actually being like running the business myself, just kind of reinforced my kind of passion for Bitcoin. And it demonstrated the need for us to move away from this old financial system to a more kind of free and open and just smoother and a situation and environment where like businesses can actually grow and like the economy can grow. And yeah, people's needs can get serviced. That's a really fascinating insight, Neil. So as a effectively an insider of the Bitcoin market, you were trying to build services that were kind of mired in regulation and therefore you weren't able to even offer them. Does anything spring to mind if I asked you for a couple of examples? Like you mentioned already someone's like nationality heritage being a problem because they're in some kind of, I guess, sanctions. Can you remember a specific example where you literally like, sorry guys, we can't trade because 
you know, and some return. Yeah, I, was, I mean, the, the, I, th- I can't remember whether it was Afghanistan or Iranian. So it was an American citizen. I think they'd immigrated to America. So they had originally come from Iran or Afghanistan or something. And it was just like, no, because like that's one of those high risk countries. I can't remember the, the specifics mm. of it, but it was a business that we definitely could have serviced. And then there were like certain industries, for example, there was like a CSGO a skin gambling platforms that wanted pay in, pay out solutions. And like, because of the nature of the business, we just had to turn it down. But they perfect. I mean, like they were legal. They weren't like doing anything illegal, but they, because it was high risk, class is high risk. You just can't like take on that risk as a business. So, okay. And so, yeah. so if you could reflect that experience with what you see Bitcoin as, like, what are some of the characteristics that you were battling with that were painful? And then what are some of the characteristics of Bitcoin that you're like, we've got to get this thing built? So I think as soon as you start interacting with fiat, particularly if, like us, we were a money services operator, you immediately have to start getting licenses. And as part of those licenses, you have have lots of obligations for compliance. With Bitcoin, it's possible to build businesses where the business itself is not taking control of anybody's funds. You're not actually like a money services business. You're not taking any custody. Like clients are interacting with themselves and then you're taking a fee, for instance. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a key thing. And then another challenge is maintaining bank accounts. So as any Bitcoin business, like anybody, is a challenge maintaining a bank account. And banks can start to like exert pressure on your business to like act in certain ways or not act in certain ways. Whereas if you're a purely Bitcoin business, you don't have to worry about that. The banks have no say in how you operate. So I'd say that would be two examples. Because of all the compliance obligations, you're kind of having to check in on your customers and kind of like ask them personal questions or sensitive financial questions that in a Bitcoin paradigm, you technically don't need to. I mean, it depends on what kind of Bitcoin business you're running, of course. But like if you're a purely Bitcoin business and you're making sure you're not taking custody of anybody's funds, it is possible to create business models where you're not having to kind of your own clients. Hmm. How interesting. This is what new technology does is it opens opportunities that didn't previously exist. And you get business models that might have existed somewhere else that can get morphed in a different way. And you get new things, essentially. We'll get to that later because I'm intrigued as to where you you know you see these products being built and how you see them being built. So to continue on this journey that you've been taking me through, so where did you end up going next? Um, so I went to Blockstream next. So I worked at Wire for a while, but I mean it, it was a problem. In fact, it wasn't probably a good business decision. It was an excellent business decision. They started to break into shitcoins and providing liquidity for those. Um, they were starting to move away from their remittance model and more towards providing kind of credit card payment services for various different shitcoins. And like, this is a B2B model where they would basically um, provide an integration to platforms such as Blockstream Green or Casa, where they would allow their users to be able to buy via wire with cards and stuff. So we'd already explained to, to the team when we got acquired, like if you guys get into shitcoin and crypto and stuff like that, we we go going to leave and uh, yeah, ultimately like that was, that was the kind of decision that I got made. So as soon as they started furrying into that territory, I was like, okay, what, what other options are available? And yeah, just so happened that Blockstream were looking for a marketing director. So yeah, I ended up moving over to, to Blockstream. Uh, I don't begrudge Wire for the decision because they became a very, very successful company on the back of that decision. There was a need in the market for what they were providing. So, and like, I have a lot of love the team there but it just wasn't for me like I, I really want to kind of maintain that bitcoin focus and blockstream still a lot of like amazing bitcoin people working there a lot of great minds and uh, yeah it was fascinating to, to 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 work at blockstream i think that was the biggest level up in terms of my bitcoin knowledge 
working there for a couple of years just because Blockstream is involved in so many different types of business. Like they've got software wallets, hardware wallets, mining, lightning projects, all the Bitcoin research stuff. And so like in the process of marketing this stuff, writing blog posts, building the website, you end up having in, like inevitably you have to like really understand this technology. And it was great just like having all these people to kind of learn from. So yeah, I really had a good, good time at Blockstream. As the marketing guy for a business like Blockstream, like what are the, the main skills that you're having to put to the test to, to fulfill that job? I mean, Blockstream in particular has some pretty technical and complex technologies. So I think, mm -hmm. I think the biggest challenge is making that stuff palatable and understandable for, for a broader audience. Mm -hmm. So a lot of it was kind of like branding and communications, particularly around things like the blog, website. Yeah. Well, the cool thing to me about that is you know, people often are like, oh, how can I work in Bitcoin? And you realize that there's actually a huge amount of opportunity for lots of different skill sets. And, you know, yes, it might seem like a engineer heavy demand. Like often when you look at job boards, it's like developer, 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 developer. And you're like, okay, not for me. But actually there's obviously this the space for people that have, for example, in this case, a marketing background can get involved. Well, what I like hearing about is what people know, right? What they bring to the table and how they get involved in the industry and have a very, very clear purpose. It's like, okay. Bitcoin is the thing I want to work on. If you're not going to let me do that, then I'm going to literally move companies. Again, not the kind of thing that <laughs> some people choose to do, right? They'll just sit there and go, okay, just whatever. I'll, I'll carry on doing this job because I need to get paid. And people don't kind of like change, so to speak. And speaking of change, so, so you went to Blockstream and then now you're at Unchained Capital, right? Yes, that's right. Okay. Yeah. And just to go between. back to your earlier oh, point, on. there's a lot of developers in the Bitcoin industry. Like you go to any conference or anything, you meet a lot of developers. It's not many marketing people, like particularly marketing people that really understand the technology, have played around, set up their own nodes. Like I'm not a particularly technical person by any means. Like it takes me a long time to get any of these kind of technical things <laughs> done. But at the same time, I am kind of passionate about Bitcoin and get hands on with stuff. And there's just not many of those kind of marketing people around i don't know why but we're almost in shorter supply than the engineers yeah so there's definitely like an opportunity for if anybody's got any kind of skills in that area like industry is definitely in need of people that can do those kind of things sorry you're, you're next someone question. out there okay. someone out there is hopefully listening to this conversation they're going to brush up their cv and it's going to come flying in tomorrow morning <laughs> i was just looking at just continuing that kind of chronological story essentially so if unchained is next which i think is what you've confirmed i have been using unchained for two or three years with the multi-sig. I did the whole onboarding process. It was fantastic. Have a couple of Chris. trezors. And so shout out to Pete Dunworth for putting us in touch. I've actually become a customer of his and he's helping me store my second key. And it's just so, so interesting from a wealth protection perspective, what this product means and particularly from, for my story. So we can get into that though. Yeah. So Unchained, what was the, the motivation for that? I guess, you know, the guys there at some point and you know, a role comes along and you're like, fuck it. That's exactly what I want to go and do. Yeah. So I, I know the, the guys at Unchained, particularly Parker and Will Cole, like for many years working in the Bitcoin industry and being very noisy on Twitter, came to get to know those guys pretty well. And uh, they raised two years ago and after I saw the raise, I was just like, that is like the ultimate company that I would like to work for in the entire Bitcoin industry. Like, I just wonder if they need any marketing help. So reached out and it turned out they did precisely need a marketing guy at that time. So yeah, I moved across to Unchained. At the time, doing really well. They like kind of cracked the code in terms of user growth. I think you mentioned the concierge program. I think that was a key 
pillar in that because multi-sig is quite daunting for a lot of people and just having like a service where somebody can get on the other side of a camera walk you through that process and reassure you that was like the kind of missing piece to get people from A to B so um yeah they, they were doing amazing then but then like I joined pretty much at the onset of the bear market mm-hmm. just like I mean I've been been through three now so then I know how it feels but it, in Unchained's case, we actually saw continuous user growth throughout the bear market, and I've never seen that before. It's been a good a good time to be part of the company. They 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 really worked out a service that Bitcoiners need, and uh, yeah, it's working out well. Awesome. And so, just to kind of dig into that very final comment you made there about user growth increasing or staying the same pace at least during the bear market. So, why is that often not the case for Bitcoin companies? And what do you think is so special about the Unchained product that people like desperately need that meant that was the case? Yeah, so uh, previous bear markets, I was at OKCoin and also at Wire. So that was the previous two. So one bear market had gone one at, one at Wire. And uh, just interest subsides in Bitcoin. So, I mean, OKCoin, the revenue model is based on speculation. People speculate when there's a lot of hype and a lot of interest, like you're in a bull market. So when the bear market hits, like... Exchanges are always profitable, or at least any major exchange is always profitable. So it wasn't like they were losing money, but they were definitely losing users. There's a lot less kind of trading volume happening on the platform, a bit of a challenge. And as well, when when you start to lose business and like things aren't going so well, that's when kind of all the little kind of um, animosities and the disagreements at a company start to boil up. Like mm-hmm. when everything's going good, everybody just gets on, solves their problems, but like yeah when times are bad. And we saw that at OKCoin. That was the time when CZ basically got kicked out, like worked out pretty well for CZ in the end. Um, But uh, yeah, there was a lot of other kind of like conflicts with the international team. Yeah, just kind of a bad time. And then Wire, again, like we were based on remittance. But when the interest in Bitcoin goes down, like people are a lot less kind of comfortable with using Bitcoin as a rails to make their payments. Like seeing all these news articles about Bitcoin crashing and stuff like that, yeah, it just of becomes it a lot less palatable. So yeah, in that instance, again, became increasingly challenging. But then with Unchained, I think the difference is ultimately it takes time for people to come around to this realization, but the ultimate, or at least right now, the ultimate use case for Bitcoin is savings. Long-term, buy, hodl, preserve wealth. Mm. And like as much as I think a lot of us would like kind of more payments to take place and kind of more other ways of using Bitcoin, like right now, most people are just using it to kind of buy and hold. And uh, and what Unchained were providing was like precisely a service that helps people do that. It's a super secure cold storage offline solution. And, uh, And it helps people that like are not comfortable with holding their own keys. Let's say they're, they're holding on an exchange or some kind of single sig wallet. It helps them kind of get to a super secure situation. And now increasingly we're offering inheritance services and stuff like that. A lot of people are starting to think about that now. So yeah, I think like just ultimately it, it's it's servicing the main use case of Bitcoin. And that's one of the reasons why they continue to go even in a bear market. The person that you describe as that almost avatar in a sense, I'm very similar to who you describe, someone who's looking to store wealth long-term and needs a way of doing it safely and securely. I chose the concierge product already, so I've been through the process. What always struck me is, is, well, two things really. The traditional financial advisor slash wealth management business that I had been dealing with for 10 years 
in some cases, you can literally turn up at an office. It's beautifully decorated. They'll take you for like a nice lunch in their like in-house restaurant. And at the end of the year, you get this portfolio of stuff. You have no idea what any of it is, right? You've got different exchange rates. You've been trading. You've got some stocks. You've got some bonds. You've got a whole lot of stuff. You're like, I don't even know what this, I don't know what this is, but I need this person to look after my money. Otherwise I won't be able to beat inflation and I certainly can't do what they're doing on my own. And what's interesting about what Unchained does, it's so unbelievably simple. As long as you understand Bitcoin, you have conviction in it long-term, it's simple like, how do I actually do it? And that process of getting on the phone and talking to someone was incredibly useful because it's kind of similar to what I was doing before in that there was some human contact. As soon as it's just software product and you're actually starting to store a large amount of wealth, or at least to me, it's a large amount of wealth, you cannot fuck it up. Like if I get hit by a bus tomorrow and my digital assets don't get to my wife and to my children. Like that's a major, major balls up of my you know, wealth strategy. And so Unchained solves that absolutely brilliantly. What does strike me as interesting though, is how does Unchained actually make money? So I think I paid like a, a consultancy fee to do the concierge process. I paid for the Trezor hardware wallets, like effectively it's a different company, right? So what's the main kind of revenue driver for a business like Unchained when you're simply facilitating a hold yeah, so the, the concierge program is not going to generate that. It's a one-off payment at the beginning of right. a client's journey. Yeah. I, I mean, the, what we charge there is essentially just to cover our costs, make sure that we're not like providing it, providing it at a loss. Ultimately, what our kind of business model is based on is if clients are storing a lot of Bitcoin using our solution, there's a high chance that they will eventually require some of our financial services, whether that's loans trading inheritance services and in the future we'll be adding more financial services on top and so it's the financial services that we're providing that will drive our revenue but the, the idea is like the, the more like hundreds thousands tens of thousands of bitcoin that are being stored using our platform like that's a massive chunk of wealth and if we provide really like simple integrated financial services for the people that are storing that bitcoin they will eventually start using those and that will that will generate the revenue but nice. i mean we're, we're we're still a fairly early stage startup we're still in kind of growth mode we're still raising vc funds and stuff like yeah, that so yeah. it's it, we're, we're not in a in a rush we're demonstrating a lot of user growth so we're not in like this rush to to, to make brilliant it, you know? brilliant problem to have right like metrics yeah. look really strong and comfortable with where the business is at at this point in time yeah, yeah and, and i can see and, that uh, working very very well like help people secure their Bitcoin themselves in like a kind of self-sovereign way. But then when you need some help in the future, whenever that becomes the case, then, you know, you've built this rapport in a sense by helping them, you know, well, what will effectively increase purchasing power over time in a safe way. They'll be more than interested in utilizing the same company to, you know, to take a loan against their Bitcoin or whatever the case might be. Gosh, interesting. Okay. So Neil, what, what really interests me about these conversations is people have, infinitely interesting kind of journeys through life. We make decisions for different reasons and different times and boom, on we go and you know, no regrets type thing. But you mentioned at the start that you, you bought Bitcoin because you were a speculator essentially, and you hadn't read or, or learned about libertarianism, for example, or the other kind of obvious subjects that come out of it. But how has Bitcoin changed you over time is where I'm trying to get to. Yeah. It's turned me into a conspiracy theory lunatic. Yeah. It's, uh... Uh, it's just been a, a long journey. And, um, first of all, it was Austrian economics. Like I'd never heard of Austrian economics, mm -hmm. got into that. I don't read so much about Austrian economics anymore. 
but like I think that created a foundation culminating with human action, which completely changed my kind of perception of the world. And then kind of a gradual increasing realization of the kind of um, the control and the, and the tyranny that comes from the existing financial system. You see things that perhaps others don't, and you kind of like see problems emerging that are going to get worse further down the line that like um, regular people that aren't as kind of steeped in this kind of Bitcoin culture probably are not, not, not spotting. But yeah, I just, I think I'm a little bit more idealistic. I think as you get older, you're supposed to get less idealistic, but I think after, after Bitcoin, I'm more idealistic. I also have a, a Twitter thread that's pinned to the top of my Twitter account of just like lots and lots of different Bitcoiners talking about how Bitcoin changed them. And I definitely 100% feel like that it changed my perception of the world. It changed the course in life, like, and for the better, I think for the better, there's, there's, there's all sorts of, I mean, like even things like diet and stuff, like it's, it's mm-hmm. improved for me. So yeah. Yeah, I'd say a broad, a broad spectrum of changes. So something that I hadn't, I'd never seen before was people radically changing how they live their lives as a result of something, you know, it seemed like most people were just kind of careering Well, it took the, the, the main thing that makes people change their decisions would be some kind of life changing moment where they almost got hit by a bus or they got some kind of disease and very nearly died or you know, some freak accident or something, and then they change. But aside from those moments, I'd very rarely ever seen someone completely kind of like alter their habits. And Bitcoin seems to do that to a lot of people that get this far down the rabbit hole. The purchasing power is increasing over time. Their diet gets affected. It's literally a cultural phenomenon. So I'm sure that if we rewound 10 years, you'd be like, I'd never turn into that. But then these things have happened. What are some of the, let's say, more unexpected sides to Bitcoin adoption from your perspective that have come up for you. So, I mean, you mentioned diet at the end there. I'm not dissimilar. So how has that changed for you? And is there any other areas that are just like, yeah, I never expected this to happen, but you know, it did. I mean, I've messed around with the paleo diet before Bitcoin, but then went pretty hard on carnivore for a while. These days could be better, but more, more like a paleo diet, but like it definitely changed my perception of what what is healthy and what is not. I think like there's a lot of kind of climate change debate now, particularly around mining. And Bitcoiners tend to like be a lot more skeptical and question a lot of prevailing theories. Before I got into Bitcoin, I was a very different place than where, where I was in terms of my my understanding of what's going on there. And then I mean just ultimately like just the the way the world's money works. Like I think that's mm-hmm. kind of the biggest change is just a better understanding of like kind of what central banking is doing, what commercial banks are doing, BIS, IMF, all that stuff. So yeah, just a, a kind of a deep-seated skepticism of the broader financial system, I think is the, mm. the, the main change. Interesting bit for me there is like, okay, well, let's consider how many people have adopted Bitcoin today. You see 10%, you see 1%. And if most people do continue on this journey that uh, that someone like yourself has taken, then logically 90% of the world is going to become more skeptical. They're going to not read probably von Mises human action because it's such a beast of a book and it's been on my to-do list for a while and I haven't got there, but it's reminded me to kind of revisit that. But isn't it interesting to think about how, how your mindset has changed and therefore, is it fair to say that Bitcoiners today, even though they're a small section of the population do represent the general mindset of the population in the future? Have you ever thought that through before? I mean, yeah, I, I could go either way on this, but 
I would lean towards the fact that sound money kind of engenders a more traditional kind of society, but then also kind of a, a one that's more based on truth. And like mm-hmm. that requires a bit of skepticism. There's something funny about money in any kind of left and right debates and like in general kind of public discourse, money is just one of those things that nobody ever talks about. And it's like this area where like, even if you're talking to a regular person that's not into this stuff and you start like questioning money, they will completely reject it. They will refuse to accept the possibility that printing money creates inflation when that's like just an obvious connection that like they, they will create hundred excuses of why inflation is happening, except money production. Then at the same time, if you bring up the fact that um, Bitcoin does have a supply cap and it can't be printed, they're like, oh, well, what about a deflationary spiral? And it's like, okay, so if you think a fixed supply could create a deflationary <laughs> spiral, I, how can you not put like two and two together that printing money could create inflation? I think once you crack that, like everything on top seems to come apart. Mm. And so, yeah, I think it's key to get people to start thinking about that particular issue and then once they realize that they've been lied to and all of these institutions, just massive scams, like a whole kind of stack of things start to start to come down. And like, I, I just thinking of some of the things like things like medicine as well. I'm a lot mm-hmm. more skeptical about since getting into Bitcoin. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, like once you realize that dietary advice is bad, then you're like, okay, what about like medical advice? And it's like, oh, wow, that's pretty bad. I think like start thinking more traditionally. I think we've all from a very early age in the, in the mainstream have been kind of brainwashed into having like lots of kids is bad mm. for various different dimensions. Like, oh, it's, it's really tiring and bad for the environment and things like that. But like, I think after Bitcoin, you start like, okay, there, there was a time before all of this and like things worked in a different way. And actually they were, they were pretty good. There's just so many areas that you start to ask questions about and you never expect to be kind of researching. I mean, so Austrian economics, I went to a business school and did my business management degree. And I, I never asked the question, what is money? I ask the question, how do I make money? But I never ask the question, what actually is it? Yeah. And then you realize there's this huge literature base that you can go back to from, you know, a couple hundred years of people, well, be longer than that, I'm sure, but that it's easily accessible because it's 20 quid to buy a couple books on Amazon and start reading about the theories of sound money. And you're like, why on earth was this not in a business degree? Isn't that one of the most foundational things? It shouldn't even be in a business degree. Like people are going to leave school and spend their entire lives working most of the time for money and they don't know what it is like at school you talk about dinosaurs and you talk about like the structure of an atom and and like things yeah. that just will never ever affect your life and then it's like okay like don't talk about the nature of money in the uk i think like general population you ask like 10 people five people probably still think it's backed by gold you know what i mean like it's it's that bad like it's such a fundamental thing and they're like okay like the structure of an atom is like fundamental to the structure of the world well the, the structure and the nature of money is also fundamental. Yeah, like we how, how, we, that how we trade, how we run whatever. our economies. Yeah, it's crazy. Exactly. Yeah. I had a, an amazing guest on Dahlia Platt. Shout out to Dahlia if she's ever listening. But she's been part of a El Salvador-based charity called My First Bitcoin, Mi Primero Bitcoin. And she's really interested in financial education. And it wasn't until I spoke to her that I really understood how poor it is globally. And there's some incredible stats you can find about how badly educated people are about financial education. I recently had an example of a a lady that helps me out in the house here with my kids. And I asked her what inflation was and she didn't know. And I said, okay, I mean, that's fair enough. Because actually I've recently found out that more like three quarters of the world has absolutely no idea what it is. And I'm like, wow, what the hell? How is that possible? And is it by design? Who knows? But it's true. That's the sad thing. So, yeah, without us kind of pioneering this conversation, 
and banging on about it on podcasts all day long, then people might, you know, start to pay some attention. But yeah, before I charge on talking about that too much, what intrigues me, Mill, got maybe another 10 minutes or so to go. What really gets you fired up about the future? And what are you looking to to spend your time focused on over the next couple of years? And how do you see things playing out in, in the Bitcoin space? It's a big question. I think the Bitcoin industry, in particular through this bear market, seems to have grown. There's just so many more kind of projects popping up, a lot more kind of um, entrepreneurship. And that makes me really optimistic about kind of Bitcoin specifically, but the world more generally. A lot of people talk about Bitcoin education being like really important and essential and kind of like educate the world about Bitcoin. But I think about the, the, the spread of the internet, it wasn't really through education. It was just through excellent tools that help people get what they wanted to get done, done. I mean, the reason why people are online more is because they can kind of find the information that they want, shows that they want, like connect with an AI and stuff like that. So I think like Bitcoin adoption isn't going to be driven by building websites that educate people how to do X, Y, and Z. It's going to be spread by excellent wallets that just make it super easy to, to get started. I mean, like Unchained is still like the UI could be improved, but we've kind of solved that like difficulty challenge by providing kind of handholding and personal service to get people mm -hmm. on board. Mm -hmm. But ultimately we have to get to a place where using Bitcoin apps are just as easy as using like YouTube or Snapchat or, or, mm. or whatever. Mm. So, uh, yeah, seeing all of this, like Bitcoin entrepreneurship pop up even through a bear market, like is, is really good. And it just demonstrates that like, like Bitcoin is spreading, Bitcoin is growing. Like there's more and more users, more and more developers, more and more businesses, more and more VCs. So yeah, and I, I don't think we saw so much in previous bear markets. Previous bear markets, it was just kind of like a bit of a wash. Things were dying down and things didn't start picking up until the price started picking up. But this this one, just like people didn't care. Yeah, maybe it's because we've got like now a good, what is it, 14 years of Bitcoiners and there's just a lot of people with a lot of conviction. We're kind of being born yeah. out of like many years of getting involved and that's what's like creating this setup. i have to say that really resonates with me a lot so i spent five years in the startup space actually looking at clean tech and i was in a very different mindset at the time to be honest but the the thing that excites me about what you just said is about building tools rather than education and if you're interested in building digital products like you understand how powerful they can be how scalable they are and like design is at the very center of a good digital product and people will literally drop off in milliseconds if it's not like beautifully designed and completely intuitive and it's very very hard to achieve that and you know then break out as a business and i did some angel investing at one point and i love that concept of kind of funding really early stage entrepreneurs with incredible ideas and you know just great teams that go ahead and, and do things that really just change how the world functions i completely agree with you a bunch of good medium posts as useful as they might be to some you know bitcoin fanatics they're not actually going to get the average person saving using bitcoin because no one's going to read them even if you get a million views it's a million people you're not going to get the kind of traction that i mean youtube is an incredible product that you know is questionable in so many ways in terms of censorship and all the rest of it but you're right like that's that's the game you got to get as good as that and if you're not as good as that then you're not going to take any market share off these people wow okay and so what do you think are some of the most interesting tools that will come out of the next couple of years some of the most exciting projects that, that you personally like i want to see somebody monetizing a wallet for the perfect bitcoin wallet i'd be happy to pay money for that i'm talking about spending wallets. something like day-to-day 
because like for a really nice experience making payments online like i'd be happy to pay a monthly subscription or something like interesting like or then take like a fee of sats through lightning through like a dual payment or something just yeah. like anything but yeah I, i'd really like to see somebody work that out because i feel like that's one of the the big challenges to creating like the perfect wallet is that nobody has worked out how to monetize them yet and you need that kind of like feedback loop to be able to yeah, like you've got to get just paid something and more developers and stuff well yeah. funnily enough in the last six months i have started using proton mail and i started paying for email having never ever done that in my entire life and mainly because of the supposed privacy benefits that it brings um, but i then i've probably done a load of dumb shit like you know automate the fact that it's linked to my google calendar and google can probably have a look in there anyway i don't know but i'm at least trying it took me a while to think hang on what do you mean i've got to pay for email but it makes sense why wouldn't you pay to store your money effectively that, yeah. that's that's it's really sure. kind of it's not an email product mate it's like it's your money like surely that's something that and I, I guess it's because in the fiat world we're so used to having like a free bank account that it's that adoption process isn't it? it's like why would i leave my free account i'm just kind of riffing out loud here slightly but yeah okay yeah, that would be interesting yeah, that's a good point. I, i'd always thought like the, the the resistance there was because everybody was used to Bitcoin wallets being free, like back from the days of like multi-bit Electrum and stuff like that. And so it's just hard to shift them over to paying for something. But the fact that they're not even paying for their bank accounts, like the old paradigm is not even getting paid for. Like I hadn't thought of that. That's a good point. Well, because that's where the bulk of adoption is going to come from, isn't it? It's people yeah. getting rid of fiat and buying Bitcoin. Well, I did a shout out to Pete earlier for the introduction. Thanks, Pete Dunworth. He had a question that I thought would be fun just to throw in at the end here. So I tend to do an audience question towards the end. How that's can good. Bitcoin fail, Neil? Oh, I just I got loads of ideas for this. So I like, <laughs> I think that the, the longer that I've been in Bitcoin, the less confident I am. Like, I think there's like um, a bit at the beginning where you're like, oh, could this work? And then you like get super like, obsessed and like this thing is indestructible. But then longer you're in Bitcoin, and I, I hear this, for example, from like Blockstream developers, you start to like see like little chinks in, in the system. And now I'm a lot less confident that like Bitcoin can survive. A lot of people say things like Bitcoin has already won. And like, I don't subscribe to that at all. I think like we can't get lazy about this. Like it's something that's going to require constant kind of maintenance. I mean, developing, I think is a risk. Like the core development team are great, but at the same time, like people often put core developers on a pedestal. You can't criticize them. And like, I don't think that's the case. Like we have to like maintain an understanding that the, the node runners are in charge. Like it's not the developers in charge, it's the node runners in charge. And like, we've seen a bunch of new features added recently. Taproot, for instance, which I was supportive of, sounded really cool, but it hasn't really seen any adoption yet. And it's also introduced kind of vulnerabilities such as this inscription malarkey that's going on right now. Um, whether you think inscriptions are a good or a bad thing, like the fact that vulnerabilities can get introduced into Bitcoin is, is a big risk. And like, are enough Bitcoin is funding code review? And like, do they have developers that they trust to be performing that code review? Don't know. Like, if you were a state actor and you wanted to take down Bitcoin, it's a very obvious vector to start like seeding people into the development community with the, 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 the point of disrupting that. And then like mining, of course, getting increasingly centralized. And yeah, like there, there are limitations with what you can do with a 51% attack and ultimately node runners are in charge, but like you can cause a lot of pain for a lot of people for a long time. If you have state actors subsidizing 
miners who will become increasingly regulated, it seems, as they grow to larger sizes. There are no kind of great solutions to these. Like people can hand wave, oh, we can do this, we can do that. But like, will it work? Maybe how long will it take to work if, if these things start kicking off? Don't know. Like, yeah, there's, there's, I mean, that's just two examples, but there, there, there are definitely more ways that like Bitcoin can go wrong. I mean, there's always like the, what do you call them? CVEs, critical vulnerabilities. They get discovered every now and then. And like, if there was like an inflation bug or something like that, like, do we roll back the gin? Like, and what precedent does that set? We've already increased the block size. That set a bad precedent. Like, and as soon as you like start setting bad precedents, it increases the argument service for like node runners, developers, miners and stuff to, to, to be arguing over. And we've already seen one split, Bitcoin with Bitcoin Cash. Like, it seems inevitable that we're going to see some more splits and how big are those splits going to be? Are we going to ever see a 50-50 split? Because that would be like disastrous. Mm. Um, I think like, yeah, people need to keep an eye on things, be vigilant basically mm. of, of like what's going on and kind of need to react and invest in solutions that emerge for these kind of problems. Interesting. It's a nice dose of realism, basically. There are, there are things that could go wrong and being aware of them is very important. And that yeah. one does get lulled into a, a sort of false sense of security in some ways by how confident one becomes in some ways. What, what do you mean I can store my money forever in this thing and therefore, you know, one day it might be worth more than it is today and no one can take it from me. And it's this it's perceived confidence that comes out of nowhere, having for years in some ways been underwater trying to catch up, thinking, oh, I'd do this and do that. And you're taking more and more risk and suddenly Bitcoin comes into your life. You're like, oh, Brilliant. That kind of solves so many of these problems that I had. But yes, interesting. Okay. It's well worth digging into those subjects that you've just mentioned. Anyone out there that's listening. Cool. Well, Neil, do you have any parting comments you want to make? And I'd love to know where people can get in touch if they want to reach out. So if anybody wants to find me, I'm on Twitter at, at nwoodfine. And if anybody's still storing Bitcoin on an exchange and putting off, taking it off, definitely go and check out unchained.com and uh, we can help get that Bitcoin into cold storage. Brilliant. Well, Neil, thank you so much for your time today. Brilliant. Thanks a lot, Jake. Okay, friends, nice work. You made it all the way to the end of the episode. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this conversation. As I said at the start, if you have any questions, then please don't hesitate to reach out. And if you enjoyed the episode, then please rate, like, subscribe, and share. That's it for now. Enjoy the rest of your day. All the best. Jake.